When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, you're listening to Talking France, a weekly podcast about, yep, France and the French presidential election, which is now just under three weeks away. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and we have another jam-packed episode for you, bursting at the seams with valuable information and insight on the election. In this week's episode, I'll be joined once again by Emma Pearson, the editor of The Local France, to discuss the latest news and talking points and find out what the opinion polls are saying about who's going to make the second round. We'll also discuss how France has changed since the first COVID lockdown was imposed just over two years ago. We'll look at what exactly is a vote blanc and just how powerful is France's military. I'll also be putting questions to Paris-based journalist Adam Plara, who is the author of The French Exception, a book about the rise to power of President Emmanuel Macron. Adam will help explain just what Macron's done for France, what can we expect if he's re-elected and just why do so many detest him. As always, the local's political columnist John Litchfield will be with us to give his latest take on how the campaign is unfolding. He'll look at the question of why so many French voters are expected to stay away from the polls and what this could mean for the result. And we'll bring you some more useful French phrases to help you understand the 2022 election. Let's get going. Now I'm joined by Emma Pearson, the editor of The Local France, to run through the latest news and talking points from the last week of election campaigning. Hi, Emma. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. You were complaining about uh, a sore voice before. Why is that? (laughs) Well, I was at the Stade de France on Saturday night for the France-England game, and I might have done a little bit of shouting and screaming and singing. What were you shouting for? For France, for England? I was shouting for France because they were on form. They were amazing. It was one of the best games I've ever seen. Paris was really on a high. There was rugby fans singing and shouting everywhere. It was a great atmosphere in the city. Um, If we move to uh, election matters... Fill us in on the latest polls, Emma. Any movement since we last spoke? There's not been a lot of change, to be honest. Uh, Macron's on 30%, so one point down on last week, but still higher than he was before the invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Le Pen seems to be cementing her place in second uh, second place, 17.5%. Zemmour, and Zemmour has pretty much stalled on 13%. Mélenchon seems to be seeing a bit of a rise. He's up to 12.5% now. And Pécresse is really trailing off. She's in fifth at the moment, 10.5% and doesn't seem to be rising from that. So Valérie Pécresse, the centre-right candidate for the Republican Party, is in fifth place. That is a long way down from, from the poll that came out just after she announced her candidacy, which put her, you know, uh, nailed on for the second round, in with a chance of becoming president of France. She really is only going down. She really is trailing. And, I mean, it's we've talked before about the, the Parti Socialiste way down at the bottom on 2%, and now the uh, the other traditional party of France is down in fifth place. I mean, to put that into context, that would be like an American election in which the Republicans and the Democrats are in fifth and last place. It really is quite a seismic shake-up for France. Yeah, there's no way back at the moment moment for those two main parties. So the only candidate really on the move upwards is Jean-Luc Mélenchon, 
who's risen slightly to uh, around 12.5%, you said? Yeah, that's right. And he seems to be uh, taking on this idea of the useful vote of the left. He's trying to gather all of the leftist voters behind him. He was doing a big rally this weekend in Paris. Uh, he was marching from Place de la Bastille to Place de la République. Uh, that was quite well attended. Now, first thing we should talk about really is Macron's announcement of his programme for the next five years. Did anything stand out apart from the fact that it was four hours long? It was in Aubervilliers to the north of Paris, so a kind of a gritty suburb, can we say? Not really um, Macron, you know, the Elysee where he normally holds these mammoth press conferences, but anything in his programme that stood out for you? There wasn't anything that was particularly a surprise. It's a continuation of what he's been doing over the last five years, as you would expect, really. Cutting taxes, increasing employment levels, creating a business-friendly economy, and as we've already talked about in the previous episode, raising the pension age from 62 to 65. He also said he wanted to create a European metaverse, and apparently this is to avoid depending on the Anglo-Saxons, i.e. the EM, the English-speaking world, and the Chinese. Interesting. I noticed some of the reaction to Macron's press conference or announcement of his programme, particularly by Valérie Progress's team, who were straight on the internet with memes of Emmanuel Macron standing next to a photocopier, accusing him of basically stealing all her ideas for, from her programme. Now, there were some similarities. Progress also wants to raise the pension age to 65. She's also promised to scrap the TV licence, like we said Macron was promising to do and reform job seekers benefit where she will ask and Macron has, has vowed this too to make people work a certain amount of hours to get that benefit but really who's copying from who do we really know that well that is the question I mean uh, Pocress has often been referred to as uh, Macron jupe uh, Macron in a skirt because her policies are similar so it's really hard to tell which way this is coming in terms of you know if we t- talk about current government measures so not not Macron's program for the next five years but Macron's program for the immediate future this is obviously to deal with the the food uh, or cost of living crisis rising food prices particularly rising fuel prices his prime minister jean castex made a series of announcements this week anything there for people to hang on to in france it was quite a targeted this one it's very specific and it's targeted at the industries who are most affected by this so it's the fishermen farming hauliers this kind of thing so there wasn't actually any direct help for ordinary people the idea is that by helping the industries that are worst affected then they won't have to pass on their costs so you won't see a rise in the price of food from farmers you won't see a rise in the price of fish you won't see a rise in the price of goods that have to be delivered by hauliers but i think The man in the street was maybe hoping for a little bit more with this, particularly in the price of petrol, which, as we've said before, is soaring. We've already seen a couple of calls for demonstrations and there are going to be more. So this might not have taken the sting out of the anger as much as the government probably hoped it would. Yeah, I went for just in a restaurant the other day looking for a bagel and the guy said he's run out of wraps and he can't get any sunflower oil anywhere at the moment. And he's, you know, this is obviously, he says, linked to either people kind of stocking up given the crisis in Ukraine. But the one quote from the agriculture minister, Julien de Normandie, I'm kind of hanging on to, he said, there is no risk of food shortages in France. Our agriculture and our food chain is strong, solid and sovereign. So given what de Normandie say, we should be okay in terms of shortages. Yeah, we're not going to starve to death, which is obviously good news. We might be paying a lot of our wages on food and fuel over the next few months. And we'll have uh, have to eat French, no foreign imports. Indeed. Now, Emma, what were you doing this time to 
two years ago. Can you remember? Were uh, you yes. outside anywhere? Of course not. I was inside doing nothing. Why were you inside? <laughs> because it was a lockdown, Ben. It was a lockdown. Yeah, you're right. It was basically the start of the first really strict lockdown in France two years ago. Uh, on March the 17th, I seem to remember. It really was a kind of shock to the system. Now we're two years on. Everything's pretty much open, you know, uh, although I noticed that I still go in shops and quite a lot of people are still wearing masks, actually, even though the mask rule in shops has been dropped. It's still on in public transport. But in terms of the COVID rates, uh, I was looking at across the local sites this week and there's talk all over Europe and Austria have brought back, you know, face mask measures. Is there any chance of France doing the same in the next few weeks? Well, probably not until the election. No, that's a, a cynical point of view, obviously. It is unlikely they'll be bringing anything back in the next few weeks. The government says that they're looking at it, that yes, cases are going up. The health minister's prediction is that we'll see a rise in cases until the end of March and then they'll start to drop again. Obviously, he is a politician, but the experts of the Conseil Scientifique, the Scientific Council, they also don't seem to be particularly worried. And they're kind of saying that now that Warm weather is here, the spring is here, people move socialising outdoors, that'll probably be enough to get rid of this wave, so let's hope. Fingers crossed, yeah. We were talking before about how France has changed in the last two years, given the pandemic, given the need to, to change the way things are done because of the lockdown and the closures of so many businesses. What about you? How has France changed in two years? For me, it's the internet. I mean, obviously the internet did exist in... Yeah, I was uh, going to say, we did have the internet. Just about, yes. But the number of processes that have moved online during the pandemic is just extraordinary. And what I found most interesting was, you'll recall, until very recently, we were having to show vaccine passes to go into restaurants and we were using the app to anti-Covid for that, which started as the Covid tracker app and then evolved into the health pass. And I don't know if you recall, but when I had visitors from other parts of Europe and they were using our app, they were so impressed with our app and it genuinely was really good. Like our colleagues in Germany, they were showing little cardboard booklets to go into restaurants. The British had to wait months even to get a QR code. And out of all the countries in Europe to create a really good app that did everything brilliantly, you would not think it would be France, but it was. Yeah, indeed. So much more of the kind of bureaucratic hurdles can be overcome online now. We're also talking about the, the strikes. There was a transport strike recently, which really had no impact at all because... Because everybody just worked from home. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with that because transport strikes have just always been the sort of go-to tactic whenever unions are in dispute with the government, just stop all the trains and cause chaos. Mm. But now it's just like, oh, OK, I'll just work from home that day. And for me, one of the best changes I think that COVID has brought about is the lack of the need to do la bise when you're meeting people. It really was kind of a major bonus of the pandemic. It's now coming back, I think, bit by bit. Is this really, you know, is this is France going to go back to normal? Are we all going to start to kiss each other on the cheek every time we see each other? Again? Yeah, the, the kissy-kissy is, is back, but I think it's been scaled down because it used to be really that you were supposed to do it sort of in every social situation for people that you knew. And I think a lot of people are taking the opportunity to just scale it back. So they'll do it with their family, they'll do it with their friends, but there's no real need to do it with every single person that you meet. Yeah, I'm still getting away with a fist bump with my mother-in-law. So hopefully that will be able to continue. Right, and the final point of the roundup is there was a, a survey this week of all the candidates 
for which one the public or members of the public who answered the survey would rather go for a pint with. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And the winner was? The winner was Jean Lasalle, who is the slightly weird candidate from the southwest who's standing on a, a very vague and hard to define programme that includes being elected as the first shepherd to sit in the Elysee. Wow, okay. And who finished bottom, do we know? Yeah, it was poor old Anne Hidalgo. Nobody wants to go for a beer with her. But I think she'd be quite fun in the pub. She'd certainly be better than some of the others. And also, really, I do want to meet her so I can ask her about her skincare regime because she just looks incredible for a 62-year-old woman. Interesting. Was Valerie Pocas included in this poll? There's no way she drinks beer. She's too posh for beer. Yeah, I think so. And I don't think she'd be fun either. She comes over as quite dull to me. No, I think I would choose the one who's most likely to pay for the round. So I reckon probably Philip Poutou, the Trotskyist, he'd pay for my round. He's not got any money, though, uh, as we discovered from his electoral campaign last week. I mean, Pocrest is the rich one there. She's got 10 million quid. True. Surely she could stand you a beer. That's true. That's true. Excellent. OK, let's leave it there for the roundup. And we'll be back next week with more talking points and news from the election campaign. Just a reminder to our listeners, this podcast is only possible thanks to those who've supported us by becoming members of the local. It takes time and resources to produce our independent journalism. If you're not yet a member but would like to join, you can find a practically irresistible price for your first month by visiting thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Now, Emma, moving on, we've just got a quick question from a reader uh, who sent this in. What exactly is a vote blanc when, we, when the French talk about uh, le vote blanc? It's pretty much what the name suggests, really, a blank vote or a white vote. Um, It's basically when you go along to the polling booth, you get your ballot paper, you don't tick any candidate, and then you put the paper in the envelope and drop it in the ballot box. And it's kind of a way of registering a protest of saying that you don't like any of the candidates, because if you just don't turn up to vote, it's not always clear whether it's because you've looked at the candidates and you decide that you don't like any of them, or you're just not interested in politics, or you're lazy, or you forgot to turn up that day, or whatever. Um, Casting a a vote blanc is a, a declaration of saying, I'm involved in the election, I'm involved in the democratic process, but I've looked at all 12 candidates and not one of them represents me. So here is how I am declaring this. On May the 7th, 2017, the 39-year-old independent candidate Emmanuel Macron smashed the traditional left-right status quo in France when he was elected the country's youngest ever president. In his victory speech, he said, Everyone said it was impossible, but they didn't know France. Bar any last-minute seismic shift, France looks set to give Macron another five years in the Elysee. But what exactly has he done to deserve it? And what can we expect from him if he's re-elected? To help answer these questions, I spoke to journalist Adam Plowry, author of the book The French Exception, which explains the remarkable rise of Macron. What has Macron done for France in the last five years? I, I think if you look at you know domestically what he has done for France, you know he he came to power um, with broadly kind of two you know big pledges, which was he was going to do politics completely differently. He was you know an outsider. He was going to bring in a new party, break up the, the sort of monopoly that the uh, the socialists and the uh, and the Republicans party had. Um, and it was going to be, you know, part of it was his, his, his approach and, and, and him as a fresh face. And then secondly, there was this promise of, you know, economic reforms broadly in favour of, you know, entrepreneurs trying to make France a more sort of dynamic place. I think, you know, by common consent on the first 
the first point um, in doing politics differently. You know, he's, he has struggled, his party has struggled to become a real force uh, in, in uh, you know, national life. Um, and, and he is governed very much in a style of, of, of most you know, French politics of the, uh, of the Fifth Republic, you know, very centralised, um, all power, all decisions run through the, um, through the Elysee. Uh, secondly, I think he's been, yeah, he's been much more successful, obviously, in the, um, you know, with his domestic agenda about, um, you know, his pro-business reforms. You know, there's been changes to the to, to labour law, which were significant. Those were some of his, you know, his first um, decisions. There have been changes to, to, to tax law, cutting taxes, not just for the, you know, for the wealthy, as he did very early in his term, but for, for everybody else as well. And payroll taxes sort of to encourage employment. So I think on, on that front, um, he has been, you know, he's been successful, even though, as you know, the you know the pandemic has sort of makes it hard to make a final judgment on sort of you know the actual impact on the on the economy. Mm-hmm. And what about the next five years? If, as expected, he's re-elected, what kind of policies or major changes, things that he might do differently? What can we expect? Um, I think it will be uh, domestically. You know, he will be. You know, he's very much going to. It's going to be continuity between you know what he's what he's done in the in this in this first term and what he'd like to do in his, his second term. He's got some unfinished business. Uh, I mean, one of the you know the major reforms that he didn't manage to push through was was changes to the pension system. Yeah, he's clear he wants to tackle that. It's an incredibly sensitive issue in France. Uh, he wants to raise the retirement rate up to to sixty five. You know, will face a huge amount of resistance doing that, and will require a lot of. You know, investment of his political capital as a as a, a second term president, but I think he you know seems quite intent on doing that. And I think you see more changes to the you know, to the education system. Sort of you know one of his puts a lot of emphasis on professional training and other routes outside of the sort of purely academic route with traineeships and and, and training up young people and others. You know tackling youth unemployment. Um, I think we'll see a lot of uh, a lot of focus on that as, as a second term. And then overseas, obviously his European agenda. And to go back to what you asked me before about you know what does he achieve for France? He's very much achieved putting France really at the sort of heart of the European Union and really a motor for kind of a lot of the changes that we've we've seen over the last five years, which have accelerated you know, tremendously in the last the last couple of weeks um, as a result of the war in Ukraine. Adam, you mentioned Macron's personality, and this is one of the reasons why, or at least at the beginning of his uh, presidency, there was so much hatred uh, towards him. During the protests, during the Gilets jaunes, even, you know, you'd speak to some moderate people in the street, they were almost kind of embarrassed to say they would vote for Macron. Is it all down to his personality, or was it some policies, some mistakes he made that engineered this hatred? Both of those things, I think, and there's an also, you know, there's another another factor which I think is um, which he's not responsible for, uh, and it's something that he talked about you know, before being elected and 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 early in his term. You know, he t- he called the French people you know, a nation of regicidal monarchists, which was his word, um, which was you know a, a, a nation of, of of people who sort of wanted a king only to to you know decapitate him thereafter and I think that's you know that's been a, a, yeah, a trend in French politics it's sort of an undercurrent in French politics has always been there and we've seen that sort of particularly with you know we saw that with Sarkozy we saw that with Hollande and we saw it with Macron that's you know soon after coming to office they immediately saw their, their, you know, their personal ratings plunge and um, unpopularity take over that said Macron is you know very particular in the sense that neither Hollande nor Sarkozy, I think, face the same sort of, kind of personal animosity that Macron has. You know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, there are, you know, the Gilets jaunes, you know, there are people, you know, putting up effigies of him being guillotined. And, um, you know, he was, you know, 
you might remember, you know, he went for a walk through the Tuileries Garden with um, with Brigitte and sort of was surrounded by this, you know, sort of mob of incredibly angry people who insulted him and Brigitte. And 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 I think yeah, a lot of that is down to the image that he came into the office. He came into office with a, with an image of being a former investment banker, um, and one of his early political decisions was to cut wealth taxes, um, which 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 benefited the most you know wealthy people in France. And I think you know in retrospects, even though that helped, I think establish him as a candidate as somebody very clearly sort of set him at out from his opponent to somebody who was going to come in and uh, do things for business and really try and get the, 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 make the country a more attractive place for business. It cost him politically afterwards, and certainly in the eyes of, 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 um, of a lot of French people. Um, you know, that was, that was a very unpopular thing that marked him afterwards. And then on top of that, you had, you know, what, what, what in French, you know, is his petite phrase and this, this, his, you know, his tendency to say remarks that come across as very con- condescending and sort of arrogant. Um, you know, he told a, uh, a young man who was at the, the Elysee that um, he was unemployed, looking for a job that he could, you know, that if he was if he, you know, basically implying that, you know, he was just being lazy, wasn't looking hard enough. And, you know, the Macron, if he crossed the street, you could find him a job. And those sort of things, I think, were, you know, were, were hugely damaging. Um, and sort of gave the impression of somebody that in some ways... Um, you know, was happy to be president, but had slight contempt for the French people. They'd much rather be, I don't know, running, you know, a country of pragmatic Germans or sort of economically liberal Scandinavians or something. You know, he, he was... A lot of people, you know, as soon as you start insulting France and French people as a president, you know, that's a very difficult, um, difficult place to be. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of that reinforced the image that people already had of him, of, of his opponents, people who didn't like him right from the start, um, as this... Uh, as this arrogant investment banker who was, who also, I think, you know, there's a part of his personality too that's, you know, he is smart and, and clever and he flaunts that sometimes and he has that sort of, you know, what I guess you call in when we were at school, you know, would be the sort of the SWAT or the teacher's pet, you know, and I think there's, there's a part of him that people kind of see him like that as a bit, you know, somebody they um, instinctively dislike. And do you think that will continue over the next five years if he's re-elected? Do you think people will accept that, that he deserves respect? I think he, I think he has learned that um, you know, we've seen a much more sort of controlled, policed Macron in the last couple of years. Um, I mean, he came out recently and you know said he wanted to, to piss off the unvaccinated. But he, uh, you know, and that was I think was a bit of sort of lapse into like the early Macron of, of somebody who was kind of indisciplined in how he, you know, how he spoke to people. So I think he is, you know, he he certainly is aware of the damage that did to him politically. I think if you look at you know his handling of the of the, the COVID crisis, the handling of the, the, the war in Ukraine, you know, even people who, you know, previously, I think, sort of would have, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, almost be embarrassed about saying that they'd like Macron or would vote for him. I think there is a, you know, if you talk to them, they go, well, actually, you know, that, yeah, he was, yeah, he represents the country, you know, pretty well. And, and yeah, he made mistakes with the COVID, but so did all governments. And actually, you know, France, relative to, to many others, did pretty well. Up. Have you met Macron? Is he all right? Is he condescending? Did he? Did he? No, I mean that's he condescending what, to you. Adam? What's What's interesting about it? I mean, it's, when you talk to people who you know who know him, um, you know, and they will all you know they would say this, but they will say you know the image that people have of him is this sort of distant, arrogant character is so different to what he's like, you know, in 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 person that he's incredibly. Um, you know, he's he's quite down to earth. He's got a sense of humour. He's sort of friendly, and and you know, he's definitely not in the mould of a, you know, a sort of Mitterrand or even a even a, a Chirac. You know, that he's he's somebody that you can relate to. Now, if you mention the French army to maybe a Brit or an American, it's highly likely that they will snigger and maybe make a joke about surrendering. 
And yet if the EU does agree to a more coordinated defence force in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the French army will likely play a major role in that. So just how powerful is the French army? Emma, you've been looking into this. I have, yeah. It's certainly big, we can say that. It's a a large army. Uh, In total, the Ministry of Defence in France directly employs 269,000 people. So... If we're making an international comparison, you have to subtract gendarmes from that because the gendarmerie in France are technically part of the military, even though their job is entirely policing. They don't get involved in invasions. And the firefighters of Paris and Marseille are also technically part of the military. But even when we subtract all of those, plus we subtract all of the civil servants who work in the Ministry of Defence, you've still got 147,000 people in the army, 51,000 in the navy and 43,000 in the air force. So it's a big army. Just in, as a point of comparison, the British military has about 150,000 total in Army, Navy and Air Force. So the French military is considerably bigger. Considerably bigger? I was just looking at a stat, actually, that France spends more than most other NATO countries when it comes to defence and plans to spend around £41 billion on defence in 2022. I think uh, several of the candidates, including Macron, want to increase that military spending. But what about the effectiveness of the French army? You know, is it any good? Well, there isn't any kind of official international ranking. We don't have a, a World Cup of armies. It's not always possible to say exactly, but there are several think tanks who kind of do assessments of this kind of thing, and they mostly rate the French army quite highly. The Rand Corporation, which is a, a quite a well-known US think tank, they say the French military is among the most capable in Europe, and it's also capable of unilateral military engagement overseas, which quite a few other European countries are not because of treaties or defence um, arrangements with other countries. And there is an organisation which is called Global Firepower, and they do do a, a ranking of world military forces which are based on lots of things, including numbers, the type of hardware they have, the type of operations they do, this kind of thing. It puts France seventh. So it comes after the USA, Russia, China, India, Japan and South Korea, but ahead of every other country in Europe, unless we count Russia as European. So it comes out pretty uh, pretty well. They're also quite active. They deploy a lot. So there are currently 30,000 French troops who are deployed overseas. They're on missions all over the world, including West Africa, the Middle East. And in the, most, in the recent few weeks, they've been deployed to Poland, Romania and Estonia, where they're part of NATO forces who were there in readiness in case Russia invades a NATO member. What about weaknesses of the French army? Anything that, that stands out or that the, the studies have said? Well, until 2015, the army numbers in France were being cut. Um, Macron has kind of reversed that trend and has increased uh, funding to the army. And it says he will increase it again if, if he gets a year, another term. But French military chiefs kind of say that the cuts mean that they still don't actually have enough soldiers to mount a long-term sustained operation. The international analysts kind of say the same thing but that the model that the French army trains on is kind of based on short intense expeditionary deployments so if there was a a large ongoing struggle against a stronger neighbour like Russia god forbid the French army could struggle there. Yeah and on that point of Russia uh, I'm just going to pick out a quote from Jean-Jacques Roche who's the director of the Institute of Weapons and Defence at the University of the Pantheon Assas. He said that Russia is a great military power compared to France, even though its GDP is much smaller. Power is a question of will, and it is not certain that France has the will to use force as an expression of power. Which I thought was quite interesting. You know, France has this army, but it's it's all a question of how you use it. It's not going to use it in the way that Russia's using their army. Well, exactly. I mean, Russia, it's pretty well documented, are committing war crimes by shelling hospitals. Would the French military do that? Maybe not. Is that a bad thing? Maybe also not. 
The local France has over 10,000 members. Their contributions help us grow our coverage of France and allow us to produce this podcast. If you'd like to join at a discount price, visit www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Now it's time to head to Normandy, where I'm joined on the line by the local's political columnist, John Litchfield. Hi, John. Good morning, Ben. Thanks for joining us today. Now, listen, any developments in the campaign? We're just uh, uh, three weeks away, pretty much, from the first round of voting. What's your take on, on how things are going? I think the interesting development since last time, you have this rise of Mélenchon, which is not unexpected. The same thing happened last time as left-wing voters decide they want to have some say in the second round, and so they pile in behind Mélenchon or decide to vote for the first time. There's quite a big pool of abstentionist voters there on the left. So he's now 12, 13, four or five points behind Le Pen, more or less in third place in most polls. Could he overtake Le Pen and be in the second round against Macron? That's what I want to ask you, John. Can he? I mean, we saw this in 2017, a really late surge by Mélenchon, and he ended up not too far off making the second round, maybe one or two no, percentage right. points. No, that's right. There were four candidates within a very short distance of each other last time. I don't think Mélenchon can uh, overall, but, you know, I, I could be wrong. The reason I don't think he can is he doesn't really have, isn't a great hinterland of left-wing votes really to capture this time. The communists didn't run last time. They were, they were voting for him, so so they've got four percent or so for themselves this time. I think a lot of other people on the left really just don't like Mélenchon. His his best chance is to get a lot of people who weren't thinking of voting to vote for him to make it as he's trying to a kind of referendum on Macron's social policies, especially on Macron wanting to put um, the retirement age up to sixty five. So he could get some extra votes in, in, in that way. The other thing that makes me slightly doubtful about my prediction he can't do it is that in about the last six or seven elections. Marine Le Pen has underscored her polls. She's done worse than the polls said she was going to do, which is the opposite of what her father used to do. And so if she's sort of, her polling is slightly exaggerated at the moment, then it becomes the gap between the two comes quite close. And then the next question is, does it make any difference? Obviously, Macron would, would, would beat Mélenchon by long distance according to the polls in the second round. But I think Macron would rather be against a right-wing candidate, whichever of the three right-wing candidates, than against Mélenchon in the second round. Last time we spoke, we were talking about the danger of him being too complacent in the campaign. Has he really got going? He, he presented his programme last week in a, in a huge, long interview. Is he, does it still feel like he's complacent to you? He's still being accused, obviously, by the other candidates of trying to kind of step over this election and of not properly campaigning and they're suggesting... I think rather dangerously and dishonestly that therefore he will be he will be a, a kind of illegitimate president if he's elected. I think the danger is that he, he won't be an illegitimate president, but he won't have much momentum behind him if he doesn't get a good score, if there isn't a big turnout. And then obviously the crucial thing is to do well in the parliamentary elections as well. So as you say, there's three weeks to go. There's a lot of campaigning to go. It'll be interesting to see whether the fact that he's put some policies up there will actually bring his score down a little bit because there will be people who won't like some of those policies. I think it will come down a bit because 30% is very high and it was inflated by the initial shock of the war. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think he, he, you will probably see much more of Macron on the campaign trail in the next two or three weeks. One of the, the knock-on effects of Macron being so high in the polls and being up for re-election is the probability that we may see record abstention rates in France this year. Polls suggest 30.5% might not turn out in the first round of voting. Why, why would that be, John? Is it literally just down to Macron and the fact that he's, he's nailed on to win? 
Yes, partly that. I think the, the, the French um, French talk about abstention, we talk about turnout. So I always get very confused by the percentages because I t tend to think in sort of British-American terms about who's the percentages of those who have voted rather than those who haven't. So I always turn the, the figures around. And, and actually, the, the, the French record of turnout in elections, presidential elections anyway, other elections is different. Uh, is very good you know i mean even last time it, when it was slower than the previous time it was 77.77 percent in the in the first round which is 10 points higher than the last british election and 10 points higher than the last u.s presidential election which was the record score ever ever i think in the u.s presidential election at 66. so overall the french do vote uh, i think that the reason it has been somewhat eroding the last two or three times as a sort of sort of withdrawal from politics especially amongst young people the fact there's not been uh, you know it's kind of not across the board abstention it, it, a lot of the abstention this time i think is on the left because the left doesn't see a candidate that they think could win or they like or they're scattered between lots of candidates that they don't like very much i think that's partly it it's partly a sense that the election is done and dusted it's partly the fact that macron although admired is not sort of loved i don't think and therefore there isn't a kind of great passion behind him except on a, by quite a small percentage of people and then of course the war i think you know people are distracted by other things and 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 uh, so there are a number of reasons why it might fall this time. I, it, it, yeah, I, the last one I saw in Le Mans was that only 70% of people said they were certain to vote, and only 74% were interested in the election at all. And that suggests that it might come down below last time 777 in the first round. And, you know, the, the lowest ever turnout in a, in a uh, French presidential election was in 2002, when it was right down at 72% in, in the first round. And that was the year that Le Pen got in the second round, because so many left-wingers didn't bother turning out to vote. So it can have an effect, a, a sort of variable poor turnout can have an effect on the result. And so it's certainly it's certainly one to watch. I, I feel it will be probably lower than last time for all the reasons you said, and I've said, but perhaps not hugely lower than last time, more like around about 75% this time. Well, in terms of how it affects the election, is there one? Is there candidates who will lose out more than others by low turnout? It's an interesting question. I think you see. I think Macron does quite well on low turnout generally because the kinds of people who do turn out tend to be people who are relatively well off, educated, older people, and Macron does well in those demographics. The people who don't turn out tend to be younger people, certainly poorer people, less educated people, and therefore Le Pen tends to do bad in the, badly in the low turnout, and, and that's why I'm somewhat dubious about Le Pen's present relatively high score of 18%, whether she'll actually get that, because people may say they're going to vote for her, but then don't bother to turn out, which is what happened. You remember in the regional elections last year, where she did much worse than the polls were predicting, and that was because people didn't bother to turn out to vote for her. So also, I'm not sure on Mélenchon whether, you know, his, his vote is obviously, it's partly intellectual left-wingers, it's partly some blue-collar workers, but a lot of his vote is concentrated in first, second, third generation immigrants who have the right to vote. So whether they're inspired to vote for Mélenchon this time, it, it would be an interesting question as well in, in large numbers. So yeah, it does make a difference. Um, I think Overall, in a sense, Macron does well out of a low turnout because I think it, it sort of magnifies his vote, but he does badly in the sense that if it's a low turnout, people can make the arguments you were talking about earlier about saying that the election is not a proper election. He is a sort of, he's not a properly elected president, which is the kind of arguments we heard from the Gilets Jaunes last time, and that will be used against him as he tries to push through somewhat tough uh, reforms in the next five years. 
Don't forget, if you'd like to be able to read John's weekly analysis on France and all our articles, you can join now at a discount price by visiting www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Emma, it's that time of week where we run through some French phrases and words to help us learn a little about the election, but also to help us learn a little bit of French language in the process. Now, you've been looking at a couple of things that stood out for you this week. Explain for us, please. Yeah, I've been looking at a couple of the candidates' sort of unofficial slogans. Obviously, they've all got their official party slogans, but there are certain phrases that have become quite associated with certain candidates. And the one that really leaps to mind here is Macron's unofficial catchphrase, which is en même temps. It means at the same time. You can use it in a literal sense to talk about two events that are happening at the same time, but it's also used quite a lot in sort of political discourse and debating to sort of sum up two different ideas that, you know, you could say, well, yes, people are anxious about immigration, but at the same time, we must recognise the benefits of immigration. And it's really Macron's, I think it's his sort of verbal tick, but I think it also sums up his style of politics quite well, you know, centrist, trying to balance ideas. Yeah, in 2017, he was kind of labelled Monsieur en même temps, and it's kind of stuck with him but it, yeah it's kind of it highlights his position in the centre nowhere he's suggesting policies of the left policies of the right to kind of you know choose a middle way so that he can't be accused of either but uh, it's kind of held he's held on to that I was looking at projet de rupture which I think Valérie Pécresse has been talking about quite a lot uh, basically a project that's a kind of real break or break with the past uh, something new that they try to really kind of hang their hat on and say look we're going to do things differently although rupture exists in English we tend to use it in a kind of medical sense like a ruptured cruciate ligament which is very painful but in French it's used a lot yeah to represent a clean break total change and it's one that we hear a lot around election time and another one is complotism Emma what's complotism? Complotism is not something you would say about yourself but it does fly around a lot in political circles it basically means conspiracy theories that you if you're a complotiste uh, you're somebody who believes in conspiracy theories. Indeed and one last thing I was going to throw out there was faux info this is always turns up around election news I think the French tend to use fake news, but they've tried to push faux info around. What's what's the, the the state of play at the moment? Are you seeing more use of faux info or fake news? Yeah, it's definitely fake news. I'm afraid the uh, the Académie Française, the organisation that tries to resist the creeping tide of English Englishisms, they even actually came up with their own word "infox," which right. pretty much nobody uses. Occasionally, you hear faux info, but yeah, fake news is just used a lot. Indeed, it is. Okay, thank you, Emma, and we'll be back with more French language phrases next week. And that's it for this week. Please don't forget to visit the site at thelocal.fr to read all our latest articles. And you can also send any questions or requests by email to news at thelocal.fr. Thanks to all our guests, Emma, Adam and John, and thanks to you too for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.